Good to go? All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Adult Sunday School. As uh, some of you know, I've been in Jordan for a month and uh, had a lot of time on my hands, so I read Isaiah in a commentary, and I'm finding that that was maybe too much prep for a single week. So I, uh, my fear is that I've had such a good experience in Isaiah the last few days prepping the lesson. I, I feel I'm not sure if I'll be able to convey all that. So the spirit will have to be with me um, and hopefully to uh, translate just a taste of what I've enjoyed. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for all that you have worked in the world. You are now working in us. We pray that as we approach Easter, uh, an opportunity to talk to our friends and neighbors about Jesus, about our suffering servant. We pray that we would have great confidence in your word, great confidence in all you've done in history, and that we would gain by that. Help me now to, to teach well, to teach faithfully, and to, to just give a taste of what you have uh, allowed me to see and experience. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's what we're going to go through here. Uh, lots to get through. I'm going to try to race through the first bit. For those who really want to study the summary and the overview of Isaiah, I'm not going to go into a lot, ton of detail on that because that would really eat up the entire lesson. And there's some materials there that will help you. I really want to more focus in our time on uh, as, as we apply that and as we see um, what Isaiah means to us in the, in the New Covenant and and uh, particularly approaching Easter. All right, so the importance of Isaiah. So Isaiah is quoted the second most behind the Psalms of anything, any Old Testament passages. Well, why would that be? Why would Isaiah be so important uh, in the New Testament? Well, because it's important to the message. Number one, we have a lot of prophecies of Jesus himself found in Isaiah. If you've never read Isaiah, you were still quite familiar with a lot of the passages there because of how often they're quoted in the New Testament and even quoted in our hymns and even some movies. But also, as you get into the epistles, Isaiah and, and, and his prophecy becomes a very foundational for laying the groundwork for understanding the New Covenant, particularly the inclusion of the Gentiles, the nations, into this people of God. We're about to go through Romans in a sermon series as you get to Chapters 9 to 11 and 15 might take Tim a couple years to get there. But when you get there, it's just verse after verse between the Psalms and Isaiah and a few other prophets that Paul is laying down saying, see, I'm not making this up. This didn't come out of nowhere. This was always there. Yes, there's a mysterious clarity to it all that you would not have known. We know from Galatians 3 and Hebrews 4 that the gospel was preached in the Old Testament. And we know Jesus laid out all that was in the scriptures concerning himself. And Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch talks about all that Jesus was there in Isaiah and all the Old Testament scriptures. And so the seed of the gospel was there. So we find ourselves in Isaiah in historical context. And so I, if you're going to read Isaiah, I recommend going with a commentary because it's going to talk about people and nations and, and specific wars and events that you're not going to know about because you're not that original audience that knows what he's talking about. So we find ourselves, first of all, in the divided kingdom. Now, we just went through a sermon series on the life of David. Well, a generation later, that kingdom divides. And we see some of the warnings from Deuteronomy and 1 Samuel 
Moses warned about a king that acquired many horses and many wives for himself, lest he turn his heart, it turn his heart away. And Samuel said that a king would take your sons and your daughters, your best fields and your flocks, and in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And so we see the people, by and large, suffering from their, their parents, their grandparents' decision to want a king to rule over them. Very few of these kings were godly. They didn't read the law of the Lord like they were supposed to. They didn't follow truth. They were a reigning power, and they, they looked at how the other nations reigned, and they made alliances, and they took all the best things from themselves, and it was gross. It wasn't the way the people of God were supposed to be living. And that's where the people who Isaiah preaches to find themselves. Very much was the Assyrian threat of the day. So Assyria, you'll see on the map, is to the north, eventually takes over the northern kingdom, and that pressure continually bears down on Judah, the southern kingdom as well. And then Isaiah is going to talk about a future, some future events, this exile into Babylon, and then the return to Babylon through the Persian Empire that comes and even calls out Cyrus by name. So I know this is a little small. Let's see. Does that work? No. Too big. Oh, I see something there. It's not coming through, is it? I don't see it anyway. All right, so you got the Arabian Desert there, Mediterranean Sea to the, to the west, Egypt, and then Israel, where I was in Jordan, right in the middle. It's as sandy as that looks. It's not very good. The Black Sea on the north, where Russia likes to shoot down my planes. And then you've got uh, Babylonia, which is Iraq. North of there is Assyria, and then Persia over there to the east. Um, so that's kind of what's going on. Lots of references. We have the northern and the southern kingdoms there that I've drawn and outlined for them. And then what happens is Assyria is going to come in and take over the northern kingdom in that whole region, and the northern kingdom is going to be no more. That happens in the first third of Isaiah's ministry. And then Babylon's going to come on the scene. It's going to destroy Assyria and take along everything and going to bring the southern kingdom into captivity. And then Persia's going to come along and take over everybody else and then send back uh, the southern kingdom, the remnant, back. And then, of course, the Greeks come in eventually, and then the Romans come in. So the time of Jesus, there's just world powers constantly conquering each other. All right, so and you're definitely not going to see this on here. You'll be able to see it later. But basically, you have the life of David, 1000 BC on the far left there. And then every one of those red lines is 100 years. So you see that the kingdom divides into the north and the south. You've got the kings and the prophets in the north, and you can find these things online very easily. And that shaded area there in the center is Isaiah's ministry. He spans 50 years. It's a long ministry. His, his life and ministry touched five different kings. And then you see that the northern line disappears. And that's because they've gone away to Assyria. The northern kingdom was taken. And then all the events on the right, Isaiah talks about. But these, these are things that are happening 100 to 170 years after Isaiah lived. That Isaiah prophesies about this coming Babylonian kingdom that there would be three, th three exoduses, if, if you will, in, into exile, and then three returns when Cyrus, in the bottom right there, takes over Babylon and sends them back. So lots going on, a lot of details we can't cover, but all that's important to really understanding how these people are going to receive this prophecy from Isaiah. There's a little closer uh, focus in on Isaiah's life there in the bottom, and this just starts to show how his chapters, uh, it's 66 books, the first 39 are going to deal with the life there, um, the events in Isaiah's life, this Assyrian threat. 
Um, and particularly, he's going to talk about Ahaz and Hezekiah, the two kings he's going to deal mostly with. And then chapters 40 to 66 are, are mostly future. We don't know how far. We, we know now, but they didn't know. Some, something in the future is going to happen. And what that tends to break down into, it's, it's written a little bit different in your handout, is basically those first 39 chapters are judgment. You could basically break, break Isaiah into judgment and hope. So for 39 chapters, by and large, he's preaching judgment. He starts in the first 12 chapters, he, it's about Judah. Judah has been unfaithful, and they deserve judgment, and judgment's coming. And then he spends several chapters talking about all the different nations. All, so it's, it's, his anger and his wrath isn't just against Judah, it's against everything, all godlessness, the whole region, the whole world is under judgment. And then he focuses on Ahaz, he starts to get ready for this transition to the future, and then focuses on Hezekiah there in the middle. That doesn't show. And then all of a sudden, it just, it's, it's like it just completely changes. Chapter 40, comfort, comfort ye my people. And then it, it's a little vague. It's somehow all this judgment you find yourself. Yes, you're, you've been judged. You're going to go into exile. I'm going to discipline you. But somehow there's, there's a bright future. It's not very clear exactly how. But you're going to go away into exile, and you're going to return. A remnant is going to survive and you're going to return. And so, and then he focuses on the suffering servant. How is this going to happen? Through someone called a servant. There's four servant songs just reveling in this servant and what he's going to do and what he's going to mean for the nation. And then it starts to get in the latter ten chapters, an inclusion of the, of the nations as a whole, that everything's going to be new. Jerusalem, the heavens and the earth. Somehow God is going to fulfill his purpose is in some, un, in some new way, unknown, unexpected way. So sorry, that was really fast. But there we are. So here are some of the particular themes that we're going to deal with. I said judgment and hope, so that's what I'm going to focus this on. In what ways are the people going to be judged? The first one is false worship. Idolatry, self-reliance. We, this is a common thing in the Old Testament. We know about this, that the nations would, would carve images out of their own hands and set them up and worship them. And they would actually believe that these pieces of wood would, would grant them something, would grant them rain or grant them protection from another enemy. And it's just the height of, of human arrogance to, to think of such a thing, that you could just fashion a god out of your own image and that there would be some power in that hunk of wood. And that's really just an example of all man-made religion is that way. Anytime we just develop our own religion, develop our own ethics, develop our own way of being measured against other people and against what God requires, that's just us making things up. We're trying to fashion religion where we end up on the good side, we ended up in, in the good with God, and then we can feel safe and secure about our future. We see a lot of weeping as this judgment's coming. Isaiah talks about the weeping on the high places. Well, those are people who are now figuring out, they've, they've devised this entire system in their minds. They've actually devoted their lives to it. They've sacrificed their children. The, they've, they've formed everything around this idol. And as the nations come and the, and the nations start to purge, they find out that it's, it's nothing. There's nothing there. The wailing is the despairing cry of those who are without hope. 
because they have trusted in what is powerless to save them. Could you imagine investing your entire life in a lie? We're always in danger of that, of not listening to God's truth and just investing in a lie. And God is judging them for this. Second thing is, sorry, this font's not working very well, the hypocritical worship. So this is something maybe particular to Isaiah you wouldn't see in, in all of them. I've had enough of burnt offerings. I do not delight in the blood of bulls. Bring no more vain offerings. Your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So how, were, how is their worship hypocritical? So here they are saying, we love God. We'll give God, we're going to follow your law. We'll, we'll give him all of our best. And yet their neighbor is in ruins. The, the, the kings have amassed his wealth and they're giving out their handouts to their friends. There's this huge disparity, huge imbalance in, in Israeli society. And God says, look, you, what, are you, what about your neighbor over there? And James talks about this too, right? Don't, if your brother comes to you in need, you don't just say, you know, do well, I'm going to pray for you. You need to meet physical needs. And so somehow this idea in Israel that you could just worship God and hate your brother or, or hate, hate Jerusalem and hate Israel as God's people, um, not caring about his people doesn't make any sense. It's hypocritical. You're looking good. You're willing to God, but you're massing all this wealth. You're, you don't really love his people. You don't care about God's future in Israel. So there's great injustice. That kind of worship God hates. All right, now hope. What are some of the big themes of hope? The big one is that there's a remnant. Isaiah 10, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God, for though your people, Israel, be as a sand as a sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. And so here we have this black backdrop in the first 39 chapters of just devastation and judgment. God is through with his people. And yet there's constantly this, this recurring theme, a little hint of hope, a remnant. So in, in the one case, this big, it shows uh, Israel's this big tree that's cut down and only a stump remains. So the emphasis there is the judgment, right? You've, you used to be this great world power. You used to be renowned among the nations, and now you've been brought to nothing. You're a little speck of dust in the Middle East. You're surrounded by much greater kings, and yet a stump remains. There's that glimmer of hope. And so judgment and hope are always together and contrasted with each other. The second thing is in, in hope is that God provides his people a servant. Now, Isaiah is called a servant. David is called a servant. Israel and Jacob are called servants. I talked about those four servant songs in the latter half of the book. Very much it sounds like the Messianic king that's described in chapters 9 to 11. Remember chapter 9, you, you're familiar with that. Unto us a, a son is born, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Here's one example. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. 
He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. He says, it is, is it too light? It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So it's, it's not very clear each time, like 50 times, he uses this word servant. And who exactly is he talking about? Of course, scholars will disagree on exactly who it is. And we obviously ultimately know that it's going to be Jesus. But it's not very clear to the original audience, right? But somehow there's going to be this special servant. So in some ways, he's like the other servants. He's like the other messiahs, the other anointed ones. Uh, every, every king was an anointed one, was an, a messiah in a sense. But something special about this servant Number one, he's going to give his life. We're going to read that in a bit. He's going to give his life for his brothers. He's going to be raised again. Somehow the servant is going to bring in the nations, all the whole world. This is not going to be a servant like any servant they've ever had and could ever imagine. So there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be a servant. And then Jerusalem will enjoy a glorious future. Behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. This is in the last two chapters and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in, the, in it the sound of weeping and cry of distress. So realize, when Isaiah is prophesying and, and preaching and writing these things, the people are at their bitter end. They don't know the future. We can look back and say, ah, you just had to wait a little long. No. They're in the midst of it. It's darkness. If you're part of the remnant, if you're one of the faithful, you know that your nation deserves this judgment. And you're about to go through an exile. It means you, your children, your grandchildren are going to be removed from your home, sent into some godless king's midst, and be at his whim. That is a horrible, horrible sight, especially for one who believes in the promises of God from Abraham, that the descendants would multiply and be a light to the Gentiles, and that God would be with you and remember you. This is not making sense. This is horrible. And so to hold on to this glimmer of hope that Isaiah says, but wait, there's more. You just need to wait. This was supposed to help them and encourage them going into the future. So here's some of the underlying themes. So we have very specific things. But these are some things that you just can't avoid by reading through Isaiah, especially if you read these big chunks of Old Testament history. Number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's king. He's in control. He rules and reigns. I can't ever read chapter 40 without thinking of chariots of fire. Eric Little refusing to run the Olympics on the Sabbath and instead reading this in the Paris church. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compareth him? So in the midst of all these world powers surrounding Israel, where it just seems at any moment they could unleash their armies and destroy the temple, destroy Jerusalem. God says, I am the high and lifted up. I am the only supreme king, the only ruler that matters. These are all puppets in my hands. I am in complete control. Nothing is phasing me. They are a drop in the bucket. They're just little pieces of sand. They're nothing. There's nothing to me. 
don't get me started on idols that you fashion out of your own hand. They're nothing. They're literally nothing. They're less than nothing. So at all times, our hope in God starts with raising up exaltation of who God is and in his power. Also being sovereign, we see that he's going to fulfill his purposes in unexpected ways. God is sovereign. He's, he's, he's in control, but that also means he gets to decide how he does things and when he does things. Number one, he works on his own timeline. Think about this. Isaiah preaching to a people for some unknown future. We now know it took over 100 years to fulfill just the immediate effects of this prophecy. Why, why would God do that? If the nations were, really were a drop in the bucket, why did God take his people through such pain, through such sorrow? Why didn't he just snap his finger and do it? He could have done it. We don't know. God has his own timeline. And then he uses his enemies. I mean, what a shame to the people of God, to the chosen people, to God's own beloved. Yes, they've been unfaithful, they need to be disciplined, but to use my enemies to do it, to, do, to use your enemies, God, that, that's going to dishonor your name. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you do it this way? And then what really gets me is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my enemy. I'm going to use Assyria to punish you. Use Babylon to pu punish you. And then they do it, right? The kings obey God's purposes. And then what does God do? How dare you touch my beloved? And he judges them. <laughs> it doesn't seem right. <laughs> what kind of a God does such a thing? Sometimes we just have to sit back and think, I don't, I don't get this God. As Paul talks about God about the Jews pursuing a, a law that would lead to righteousness, and they don't obtain it. But this, this other nation, they don't even pursue righteousness, and God gives it to them. Why would you do this, God? It doesn't make any sense. This isn't how we would do it. We wouldn't expect this. God is sovereign. <laughs> he does as he pleases in the heavens and among the sons of men. And then the, the inclusion of the nations, again, we're going to read, read more about this. Th this was an unexpected thing. For the, for the purposes of, of, of Jerusalem and of Israel to be built up would, would happen in a way that would include now the nations, those, the unclean, the uncircumcised. The Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout, sprout up before all the nations. That's how God's going to do it. It's going to include the nations. And then the last thing I'd say is, We've got to have something you might call the double fulfillment of prophecy in mind. So we have that tree that's cut down, and then there's a stump. And then there's a remnant that they survive. So the Assyrian threat is there, but not everyone's going to be destroyed. And then they're going to be brought over into Babylon and planted there. And, and they're going to give their w sons and wives to, to marriage, and they're going to increase the prosperity of where they are. We know this happens in Jeremiah. And then you know, a few generations, they teach their children about the law and all the things that God has done, gives them hope and hope and hope, and eventually God raises up Cyrus and frees them and brings them back and plants them there in Jerusalem. The temple's in ruins, the city's in ruins, but slowly through Nehemiah and Ezra, the city is built. And so there, there's all these little fulfillments of the prophecy. But then ultimately, we're, talked, we're told about a root, a sprout of Jesse, right? a son of David, 
along that remnant, along that string, is going to come one, very unexpected. He's going he's to come from the line of David. He's going to be born in some hick town of Bethlehem and then grow up beyond the Sea of the Galilee. He's going to come with a message of hope. And that true remnant, that true Israel is going to come in the Lord Jesus. And so as you read prophecy, you have to understand that there's all these multi-layers. It's, it's like looking at a mountain range. Like sometimes on our drive-in, we can see red rock there. And, you know, we've got the lower mountains and the upper mountains. And s- sometimes we're not exactly sure, what is Isaiah saying? How is this going to be fulfilled? And, and the answer is it, it's fulfilled in multiple ways. There is an immediate. It, we don't want to just overly spiritualize everything. There is immediate fulfillment. There was a physical people of Israel that were physically preserved and kept alive. And yet that was never the ultimate reality going forward. So when we read our Old Testaments, we need to see that. We're there. The promises for us are there in the Old Testament. We have to see those. All right, let's jump to the New Testament and see how the New Testament sees. I'm not going to spend any time on this, but we, we just saw a few months ago in our Christmas season, we know of things like a virgin will conceive and have a son. You'll name him Emmanuel. That comes from Isaiah. We know that John the Baptist is going to come and, and lay, lay the works, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's Isaiah. We know little things like he was going to come from Galilee and called a Galilean. That's from Isaiah. And there's Hosea and Micah, which, by the way, are Isaiah's contemporaries. Let's go to Jesus' public ministry. In Luke 4, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now there's a sense that the Spirit of the Lord being upon me was Isaiah himself, right? Which is true. There's, there's, a, there's a sense of, of the social injustice that was happening, the, the rich and oppressing the poor, and wanting to right that imbalance. And yet we know Jesus is going to take this message, he's going to claim it for himself, and he's going to talk about proclaiming liberty to captives in a whole other way. It's that double fulfillment, triple fulfillment. So we have no doubt that Jesus himself claims these prophecies for himself. Also in Matthew 12, many followed Jesus and he healed them all and ordered them not to to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And so we know that my servant, the servant, is ultimately Jesus. We have no doubt about that on the testimony of the New Testament. We jump to Matthew 13 and and John 12. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. 
Indeed, their case, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And John adds, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, that is Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. Isaiah spoke of Jesus' glory. So it's interesting, Isaiah 55, 11, very uh, popular verse. The, God will not allow his word to go forth and be empty and be void. It will accomplish the purposes for what he intends. And we, th- we tend to think of that in a very positive light, and we ought to. We're never without hope. God has the creative power to speak into things, create things out of nothing. And yet, in this way, God had a different purpose for his word. It's going to fall upon the impenitent, not the remnant, and it's going to harden them. It's going to produce more judgment. And that's what God's word does. God's word creates life, and it damns and destroys at the same time. It's a fragrance, right? It's an aroma of one to death and of one to life. That's a sovereign God moving in the world. And then, of course, we get to the cross. And we do have the time, thankfully. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah 52. We're just going to read this whole passage because it pretty much preaches itself. There's a great passage that I memorized in Jordan. Uh, it, it's amazing. You can't really ever go to the Lord's table without thinking of this passage. 52:13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. This is that root language. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death 
and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's one of the servant songs. It's one of the four that we find in Isaiah, and of course, probably the most popular one. So much we could go into in these details. A lamb led to the slaughter. By his stripes you are healed. These are all quoted in the New Testament. He committed no sin. He was numbered with the transgressor there between the two thieves. Just to meditate on this chapter alone would be well worth your day. And then we have, of course, the hope for the nations, as I've alluded to many times. Uh, Matthew 21 and Mark 11, when Jesus is in the temple and he's angry with the money changers, he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a prayer, a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. A house of prayer for all nations. In, in the temple, there, were, there was a separation of the Jews and the Gentiles, but God's ultimate goal was there wouldn't be a division. He's, he's one day going to take down that division by destroying the law. It's meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. They should have seen that in their Old Testament. They should have seen that in Isaiah. They didn't see it. They became arrogant and proud that they were God's chosen. And I said, Roman, I wish I just had time to go through all the passages in Romans. It's amazing. In Romans 9 to 11, as, as Paul's developing this theology of, really, what does it mean to be a son of Abraham? To be a child of God. That this mystery of the gospel is going to come in, a, in an unexpected way. And he lays his foundation with tons of quotes from Isaiah and others. Chapter 9, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were bywords. They were, they were like, like we might talk about Hitler, like he's the embodiment of evil. Sodom and Gomorrah were evil, wicked, deserving of God's wrath, and Isaiah is comparing Israel to them. That's what you are. If, if, the, if there's no hope, if there's no remnant, if there's no glimmer of hope in this sea of judgment and darkness, that's our end. That's where we're going. So don't be so proud. <laughs> Chapter 10, Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So we're told to repent. We're told to believe. We're told to seek God. And God gives it to someone else who didn't do that. They didn't have the law. They, they didn't have all the benefit. They didn't have the history of Israel. They were in God's chosen status. And God just upends the whole system and just does grace the way he wants to. <laughs> he just, he's graceful. And yet he's still a judge. Requires that repentance. Chapter 15, again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So this root of Jesse, this son of David, this king on Jerusalem's throne, is going to rule the Gentiles. Again, it doesn't make sense in the original audience's mind. In Acts 8, again, the Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading from Isaiah 53. The Spirit tells Philip, go talk to this guy. I don't know how, I don't know why he's reading from the Jewish text. I have no idea. But he is. 
says, do you understand this? I was like, how am I understand this unless somebody explains it to me? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Beginning with this scripture. A lot of you who have been here a long time know Larry Aaron. He used to be a member here. He's got a great testimony. He's sitting there at home one day. I, I don't think he was a practicing Jew, but somebody comes to the door and is evangelizing. He says, oh, no, thanks, I'm Jewish. Oh, well, let me show you uh, in your scripture, Isaiah 53. And Larry is furious, slams the door. He runs up to his attic and finds his scriptures. And he's reading it, and he just weeps. It's right there. He's converted on the spot reading Isaiah 53. It's a beautiful testimony. I imagine those who are, who are trained and specifically to go and preach to the, to the Jewish world become very good at Psalms and, and Isaiah to wield, this, to wield their scriptures against them and really for them. But that ought to give us all some, some great confidence. I mean, it would, it would be good enough if, if God just dropped on high um, with this whole new thing that had never been done. God just brings the gospel in, in the first century A.D., and it's glorious. It's great. It's good for us. But how much more to be able to turn and root it in all that he's done in history? He, God isn't working out a plan B. He, he tried for his people, the Jews, and now he's like, well, forget them. I'll try something new. No. Paul's entire argument, Jesus' entire argument is, this is what it was always meant to be. Go back to Abraham. Isaiah talks a lot about the Abrahamic covenant. We, we forget if they have ever come. Yes, a people and a nation, but they were to be the light to the Gentiles. That was always the plan. It's not a new thing. Yes, it happens in unexpected ways, but, and then you get to Isaiah, and it's, it's working out. God is, is keeping his promises. It's not what we expected. We thought maybe this nation would grow and be a world power, and, and everyone would just come to them and, and bow to them and bow to Yahweh. It's not what happened. God is doing it in a different way. That will one day happen, right? We see ourselves as a remnant now. We see ourselves as the, as the minuscule, as the minority, as the persecuted, which could get a lot worse in our country. Those days might be coming. We enjoy somewhat of a still a Christian majority here. A lot of the world doesn't enjoy that. A lot of history doesn't enjoy that. And that may be our future. But, but as we're in our workplaces, we're in our families, and maybe we're the remnant, Want to get in head application there. Maybe we're that, that minuscule thing. We need to think ahead with eyes of faith. There is going to be a day when all the nations, the kings of the earth will come and they'll bow to our servant. We will actually, I don't understand this, we're going to rule and judge over the earth as the sons of God. They will come and bow or they will repent and join us. You will one day be in the majority in fact, you'll be the only thing that exists. The new covenant comes to fruition. Everyone will believe. Everyone will be there. And we will be praising God for eternity, for being faithful. When we didn't quite understand, we didn't quite see it, when he didn't work in the way that we would have expected. You've got to be like the people back in Isaiah's day. They don't understand the future. Maybe Isaiah is drunk. Maybe he doesn't know. He's just babbling and I'm never going to get to see this, this restoration of Israel. I'm going to be dead in Babylon. Who cares? We need to look at our Christian lives, not as some individualistic thing. Not as some, as we go to Easter, of Jesus went to the cross and died so that I might be free. That is true. And praise God that he is.
But what was Jesus doing on the cross? He is working out all of this history. He is fulfilling all that God has ever promised. And it assures us that he will continue to work in the future to the end. So you've got to see yourself in that grand history of redemption. The already, not yet. Think of the, the people who are, they've gone to Babylon, and now they're coming back. They're in that Arabian desert. And we don't, they don't know what's going to see. We, you know, Jerusalem, we've heard, is just rubble. It's not what it once was. And okay, God has freed us, and somehow he's going to do something, but we still don't understand. That's how we find ourselves. We are, in a sense, in an exodus or, or on the return from that exile. We're not at the promised land yet. He's freed us from Egypt. And we know these promises, and God has demonstrated enough for us that we ought to believe for the future, but we still don't see with our eyes. We still can't quite grasp how it's going to be. And that's our lives on this earth. There's a promise coming. We, we have every reason to believe it, but with our eyes, we have every reason to doubt it. Don't think of the Israelites in Isaiah's day as stupid. I mean, look at the kings around them. They were just this pitiful little nation, a city really, it was all that's left in ruins. It made every sense in the world to want to make alliances, not listen to Isaiah, trust Egypt, trust Damascus, trust Assyria, trust Babylon, try to make allegiances and protect themselves, full of the world's wisdom. Same thing. God calls us to empty ourselves, to give cheerfully. But what about my 401k? What about my IRA? I've got to protect myself. The financial markets are crashing. The banks go under. God, how can I give to those in need? I've got to watch out for myself. You, you, you preach the gospel. You're, you're faithful that Jesus is your master, your king, and you're ridiculed. You don't get promotions at work. It, it can be very easy to just maneuver your mind. Well, if I just make it a little more palatable, if I just maneuver in a way that will make it more successful, then Jesus' name won't be derided. My friends, we need to trust God. He knows what he's doing. Don't let your mind get to you so much. Saturate yourself in the word of God and see how he has always worked in the world. And he calls you to be a remnant who is faithful. I've already jumped ahead to a lot of this. I think the last thing, just because we're running out of time, is, is to be astonished at the cross. It says there in Isaiah 52 and 53 that the, they were so astonished looking at this Jesus. So imagine as we're, as we're, we're going to think about Good Friday and, and Easter coming up soon, and every time you see the cross and you, you come to the Lord's table, think about Isaiah 52 and 53 and be astonished at what God has done. I was raised in a tradition that really focused a lot on the passion, the physical suffering of Christ. And when I, I finally came to faith uh, myself, and I'm not blaming that tradition for not being <laughs> a Christian earlier on, um, I kind of, I looked at that and said, well, I don't want to so much think about the physical suffering of Christ. I want to think about why. Why was he there? What's the purpose of him being there? And of course, that's good, right? You don't want to just focus on some physical suffering and not understand the spiritual anguish and why Jesus went to the cross, and what he was doing for sins. We can go overboard in that regard. But I also feel like maybe I, I overreacted a little bit. F Isaiah 52 and 53 put Jesus up on display. We have the descriptions of the gospel. There is a sense that we're to stand at the, at the foot of the cross and just be astonished. 
number one, what, what are you doing, God? I don't understand. This isn't the way of a sovereign king. This isn't the way it ought to happen. How, how is Jesus being crucified by, by the hands of wicked men? How do you use your enemies for my sake? I don't understand, God. We should be astonished at this one that is, is the Isaiah 40. He's the exalted Yahweh who sees the nations as a bucket. And here he is placarded before us up on a cross, given over to Roman soldiers. I don't understand that, God. And yet we can also see the love, his humiliation poured out. So I don't know what you imagine when you come to the table and you picture these things. See Jesus there on the cross. And I would say, look at his eyes. Look at his eyes. Where is, where is Jesus looking on that cross? Is he looking in anger at the crowd around him who are, who are crucifying him? He's not. Is he looking to heaven, calling for 12,000 legions of angels to come and rescue him? As he says his father would send, he only needs to ask. Where is he looking? He's looking at you. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Why is he hanging on this cross? It doesn't make any sense. He's staring at you. He wants you to be faithful. He wants you to be a remnant. He's there to die for you. He's there to bear your iniquities. He's there to, to establish all that God has planned through Abraham and David and through Isaiah. And all the hope for the future all hinges upon Jesus staying there, receiving the wrath of God in our place, being a lamb led to the slaughter. It's all there. It's in your Old Testament. It's in your New Testament. So I pray that that message would hit you in a certain way this season. Some of you are going through some awful things. Foot surgeries and knee surgeries, cancer. <laughs> Some of you are live in a city you don't want. Your job has moved you here. Some of you are a remnant in your household. 30 years you've preached to your husband. Your kids have gone astray. And you feel wrecked. The cross ought to be a great reminder God works in his own time. He works in his own way. But he will ultimately be satisfied. He will bring about the good news to your hearts and, and for all of eternity. And so the call for us today is to simply trust that. Trust in him. See what he's done. If God did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? Everything possible he has already promised. Let's pray. Our Father, we are unworthy of these things. We, have, we are jars of clay, unable to even grasp and appreciate these truths. But may the heaviness of, of your word today carry us through every particular difficulty that we have. May we find in you a great God that towers above the kings of the nations, that towers above the worldly philosophies, that towers above our own wicked hearts. Father, we pray that you would create in us a faithful people, individually that we would care about the poor and the marginalized. As a church, that we would be never afraid of your truth, but lift it up and raise it and go out into the city of Las Vegas with the only message that can save them. 
Help us to enjoy our fellowship meal today, our bonding one another, that we would not just love you, but that we'd love our brother. And thank you for Easter coming up. We pray that we would believe you and trust you and invite a friend or a neighbor. Maybe we've invited them before, but we'll invite them again that they might come and hear this glorious news of the suffering servant, the only uh, Messiah and Savior uh, that this world has ever provided. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.